He is risen. Now, it was so encouraging putting that video together and being able to spend some time with all of you this week. It may not be the same as being together, but, but it was a blessing nonetheless. You know, he has risen indeed. And, and, and because he's risen, we're family. Even when we're apart, we're family. At the heart of the Christian faith is is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we were to ask the first Christians what it was that made them Christians, they would immediately respond, we exist because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Paul, in one of his earliest letters written, actually one of the earliest letters, letters written in the New Testament, dated roughly to 17 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, he writes this, he says, For what I receive, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ Jesus, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, And last of all, he appeared to me also as the one abnormally born. Paul's writing about the resurrection. And he's writing about it no more than 17 years after it took place. Let me try to put that in context for you. I remember when John Lennon was murdered in 1980. I remember where I was and how I felt. That was 40 years ago. Forty years ago. I can't believe it. It's well over twice the amount of time that's passed between Jesus' death and resurrection and Paul's writing of this letter. In the days since John's death, there's been all kinds of wonderful words about his interest in peace and human rights. Certainly interest in the Beatles and his solo career have continued, if not even grown. Everyone knows his words give peace a chance. Everyone sings his song, Imagine. But do you think, what do you think the response would be if I started claiming that John Lennon was raised from the dead? Chances are there would be a few objections to my claim, as well there should be, because it's a claim that is easily proven false. But but that isn't the case with Paul when he talks about Jesus' resurrection. None of Paul's contemporaries, including those who had the most to gain from disproving the resurrection, ever objected to his claims. They never disproved them. In, in fact, Paul claims that after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to Peter. And, and he appeared to the disciples. And then he appeared to more than 500 people at the same time most of whom were still alive and ready to give their testimony at the time that Paul was writing. Paul also talks about Jesus appearing to James, Jesus' brother. And this is the James who never followed Jesus during his ministry, who was a critic of Jesus during his ministry, like any good brother would be. (laughs) But now he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. How do you explain Jesus' brother's transformation from a critical brother during Jesus' lifetime to a leader in the church after his death? The answer must be his appearance to James after the resurrection. 
You know, nothing else explains such a, an abrupt change. The same is true of Paul. After Jesus appeared to Paul, Paul went from being the greatest enemy of the church in his day to the greatest evangelist in the church of his day. Paul was on his way to persecuting Jesus' followers in Damascus when Jesus appears to him and interrupts not only Paul's plans, but his entire life. All this aside, notice how Paul begins this passage. He says, For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures. It had all been foretold in the scriptures. But, but what I really want you to see is that he's actually quoting a formal teaching that he had received. He's saying, these aren't my words I'm giving you. I'm, I'm just giving you the thing you've already heard yourself. That's already part of our worship as a church. Paul's quoting from a formal teaching. This was a, a formalized statement of belief that had already been developed and taught well before Paul received it. What this means is that we've just moved the teaching of the resurrection back from 17 years after it happened to several years earlier. In fact, many scholars believe that this creed was used in the church from the very beginning, from mere months after Jesus' death and resurrection. What this tells us is that the resurrection was at the heart of the Christian faith from the very beginning. It was not some fabrication that came in after the fact. It's what began the church. The resurrection was the event of first importance. And it, along with Jesus' death on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, was the impetus that birthed the church. And yet so many people remain skeptical. Our culture is cynical and full of doubt and lots of misinformation. And I get it. After all, lots of things uh, we're cyn- there's lots of things to be cynical about. And there's no shortage of misinformation on a wide range of topics. Doubt is also understandable given the fact that bodily resurrection doesn't exactly happen every day. To the best of my knowledge, no one on my street has ever been raised from the dead in the 19 years that I've lived on it. But it's important to also consider that no one has ever claimed that they would be raised from the dead either. Unlike Jesus, who made that claim several times. The thing is that just because something isn't isn't common doesn't mean that it isn't true. Most believe in the Big Bang. In fact, according to Wikipedia, the Big Bang Theory is the prevailing cosmological model for the observable universe. Now, while it's true that the Big Bang describes a universe originating in a highly dense, high-temperature initial state, and it doesn't actually speak to where that state came from or what initiated the Big Bang, it does suggest that at some point there was nothing, and then in the next moment there was everything. This by far is the most popular understanding of how our universe came into being. But is it easy to wrap our heads around the idea that everything came out of nothing? I don't know about you, but I've burned a few hair follicles thinking about that myself. It's incredible when you think about it. 
But that doesn't stop anyone from thinking that this is the most reasonable explanation for how the universe came into being. Okay, but, but certainly we have you know, lots of big bangs happening everywhere, right? They, they happen all the time. Well, as far as we know, it only happened once. So we have this incredibly off-the-charts idea that everything somehow came out of nothing and that it only happened once, but we still almost, but still, we, we don't really have a hard time believing that it's true. It's, it's the accepted truth that's out there. How is that any different than understanding that at the resurrection of Jesus, something incredible, something new, something equivalent to the spiritual Big Bang actually happened, even if it was only once? I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, the, the fact that we have a universe must account for something. And, and isn't there observable, observable evidence that, that points to the universe beginning? It's a good point. I'll come back to that in a second. But for now, remember, just because something isn't common doesn't mean it's not true. Still, when I, I hear people talking about doubting the reality of Jesus' resurrection, I understand. It's hard. But what I really dislike is hearing statements like, oh, people in ancient times, they were superstitious. They would believe anything and everything. Well, guess what? People in ancient times were the same as people today. Some were superstitious and some weren't. We have buildings without a 13th floor. What's up with that? Building makers, you're not fooling anyone, you know. We have people throw salt over their shoulders when they spill some. And and there must be an audience for all the fake news and conspiracy stuff that's out there. Somebody's watching it. Somebody's believing it. Somebody's reading it. Do I have to bring up all the things that have been floating around Facebook since the COVID came knocking at the door? We have lots of superstitions in our world today. But at the same time, we also have people who are skeptical by nature. And they won't believe anything unless they see it with their own eyes. Well, the same was true in ancient times. Let me show you what I mean. If you have your Bibles handy with you, our text today comes from John chapter 20. We're going to be looking at verses 24 through 29. John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. As you turn there, let me give you the context. It was early resurrection Sunday, and Jesus had been raised from the dead, leaving an empty tomb behind. Mary Magdalene had gone to the tomb and saw the stone had been rolled away, and she ran and told Peter. Then Peter and John run to the tomb and confirm that it indeed was empty. But we are told that the disciples didn't understand the meaning of the empty tomb. The light didn't go on for them. They didn't immediately connect the dots and think, Jesus must have been raised from the dead. This is important for us to understand. No matter how many times Jesus tried to tell the disciples that the resurrection would happen, they didn't believe the resurrection had happened. 
In other words, when they were faced with an empty tomb, the resurrection was, at, was not at the top of their list. Why? Because people don't usually rise from the dead. A bit later, Jesus appeared to Mary and she reported back to the disciples. But the disciples were still unconvinced until later that night when Jesus appeared to them. They were huddled together in a room with the door locked, afraid that they might be the next hit on the religious leader's list. But when Jesus appeared to them, everything changed. In fact, the result of seeing the resurrected Lord was that a group of terrified ex-followers of Jesus became bold, faith-filled evangelists that would spread the gospel and die for their faith. The resurrection changed them completely. If the resurrection didn't happen, there would be no gospel, there would be no church, and there would be no transformed lives. Okay, let's go back to the idea of people believing in the Big Bang because there's observable, observable evidence. May I suggest I just stated some very compelling observable evidence that points to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus? There's no other explanation that better explains the change in the disciples' lives or the reality of, ex- of the explosive birth of the church. Picking up the account in verse 24, we read. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands in his side, into his side, I will not believe it. Stop there. For some reason, when Jesus appeared to the disciples that first resurrection Sunday, Thomas was missing. John doesn't tell us why he wasn't there, so we're left to speculate. And unfortunately, we don't know that much about Thomas, really. What we do know is that when Jesus intended to go back to Judea to raise Lazarus from the dead, Thomas said, let us also go that we may die with him. The reason for Thomas' chipper attitude was that a short time before this, some of the Jews in that area had tried to stone Jesus to death. So there was a real threat to Jesus heading back to the area near and around Jerusalem. So true, Thomas may have been a little bit pessimistic or a little realistic, if you prefer. But on the upside, he wasn't a coward. He, He was loyal, even to the point of being willing to die at Jesus' side. So I don't think that Thomas was missing at Jesus' first appearance with the disciples because he was fearful or that he was hiding, at least not in that kind of hiding, maybe a hiding of another kind. My best guess is that that Thomas wasn't there with the other disciples when Jesus appeared because he most likely wanted to be alone in his grief. Some people deal with despair and disappointment by finding comfort in the support of their friends and family. Others isolate themselves and they wallow in their pain and loss. Thomas was most likely a wallower. He didn't want to be around the people who reminded him of everything that he had lost in following Jesus. You know, Thomas felt betrayed. 
Thomas was angry. Thomas didn't have a plan B. His entire life had lost its meaning and its momentum. And so he was most likely sitting at home in his underwear, eating cornflakes from a box, drinking orange juice from a carton, and playing Xbox. Just like most of us are these days. At the same time, he does show up later. He was loyal after all. He was a true friend and no matter how hard it was to be with the rest of the disciples and be reminded of all they had lost, there was something to be said for being with the people who know how you feel. The only problem was that they were claiming that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead and that was something you really didn't want to hear right now. Now, you might think it's strange that Thomas didn't believe the disciples in their claims. After all, he's been with these people for three years. He should know what kind of people they are. But, But I don't think it is. After all, the disciples didn't believe Mary either. They didn't believe until they saw Jesus with their own eyes. So why would we expect it to be any different for Thomas? Thomas needed to see because he was willing to die for that which he saw. Now, I find that an attitude worthy of praise. Thomas had a show-me-the-truth kind of faith. He took responsibility for his faith. He needed something substantial before he was going to believe. You know, it's so common to think of faith today in the context of preferences. People often choose their faith like they choose the latest fashions. We want designer faith. We, it's, it's all about what appeals to us and what best fits us. It's about what makes us feel and look good. This, is, this kind of faith isn't about truth so much as is it about practicality. We ask questions like, how will this fit into my life? Or does it work? Will it make me happy? Will it make me a success? But to Thomas, faith wasn't something you choose. It was something you were convinced of and lived for. Now, I imagine the problem with Thomas wasn't that he didn't want to believe. It was simply that he was too hurt and too confused to believe. His heart couldn't take it. That's why he says in such a matter-of-fact, blunt way, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Picking up the account in verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Through the door, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So much that I love about this passage. Notice that that Jesus says to Thomas, Go ahead. 
Go ahead, Thomas, put your finger in the holes of my hand or in the wounds of my side. Go ahead, knock yourself out, buddy. This is so funny to me because where was Jesus when he said that? He wasn't there. It's like you're at an office party and you're doing this nasty imitation of the boss in front of your co-workers only to find out the boss is standing directly behind you at the time. Jesus lets Thomas know that even though he wasn't physically in the room with Thomas, when Thomas went on his rant about not believing, he was still present. He was still watching. He was still listening. Personally, I think Jesus had Thomas right here. Jesus had just proven to Thomas that he was ever-present and all-knowing. Everything else after this was just gravy. Thomas responds with the single greatest declaration anyone makes of Jesus. This is the climax of the Gospel of John. When, when Thomas, the, once, the one accused of unbelief, makes a radical shift to becoming a mouthpiece of the highest possible confession of faith in Jesus. He says, my Lord and my God. There's no gray area here. You know, we can't say, gee, I wonder what Thomas really thought about Jesus. <laughs> this is as bold of a confession as you can make. But this isn't just a statement about Jesus' authority or his deity. It's also a statement about Thomas's faith. Thomas no longer doubts. Thomas is committed with both feet, firmly planted. And from now on, it was Thomas and Jesus all the way. In fact, tradition tells us that Thomas ends up taking the gospel to India, where he's eventually martyred for his faith. Jesus was indeed Thomas's Lord and God. But before we close, there are a couple of other things I want you to think about in reference to Thomas. Notice that Thomas was wrong. He was wrong about what he needed. He thought he needed to put his fingers in Jesus' wrist and side, but all he needed was to see and to hear Jesus. In verse 29, Jesus says to Thomas, because you have seen me and believed. He doesn't say because you've touched my wounds and believed. Thomas overestimated what it took to turn him around. Maybe we do the same thing sometimes. Now this says something very important to us about Thomas's doubt. Thomas doubted, but he wanted to believe. And this is further supported by Jesus' response to him. He doesn't chastise Thomas for his unbelief. Jesus was okay with Thomas's request for proof. Now, there are times when Jesus does chastise people. When the religious leaders asked for a sign, Jesus told them to forget it. Either that or he would give them some kind of a cryptic answer. For example, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus, in response to the Jewish leader's request of a sign to prove his identity, Jesus says, only an evil adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Jesus answers their question, but he's also playing games with them because they're playing games with him. Jesus had done more than enough to prove who he was. So the problem with the religious leaders wasn't that they didn't have enough proof to believe. Their problem was they'd already decided not to believe. 
In their estimation, believing Jesus would cost them too much. It would turn their lives upside down. What this means is that not all doubt is the same. There's the rebellious unbelief, unwilling to change. And then there's a confused, searching, questioning doubt. Thomas was confused, but not rebellious. And unwilling, he was not unwilling to be confronted with the truth. He just didn't want to be disappointed again. Notice also that Jesus doesn't treat Thomas like his faith is substandard in any way. Sometimes we get this idea from the passage. Thomas was satisfied with the same proof that convinced the rest of the disciples. No less and no more. He didn't have to touch the wounds. He just had to see and hear Jesus. Notice also that Jesus says, Because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. When he says that, it's not that Jesus is saying, Because you've seen me, you've believed. More blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. So Jesus isn't making a comparison between Thomas and those who would come after him. He isn't saying, Their faith is better because they didn't need to see me like you did, Mr. Doughty Pants. All of the disciples needed to see Jesus. And Jesus understood that. What Jesus is saying is that the testimony of Thomas and the other disciples would become a blessing to all those who would come after them and would believe in their testimony. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about us. Put all these things together, and and what you find is that Thomas may have doubted, but he wanted to believe. He wanted Jesus' resurrection to be true. That's why he pushed back against the testimony of the other disciples. He wanted what they had, but he had missed the opportunity. He hadn't been there when Jesus had appeared to them. And he was mad with himself, and he was mad with the situation. So he pushed back with big words. But he wanted to believe. He had doubts, but he wasn't cynical. And there's a big difference. To be in a position of doubt is to say, I don't know, but I'm open to being convinced. To be cynical is to say, it's too good to be true and you can't convince me otherwise. To be cynical is to be like the Pharisees asking for a sign when they've already made up their minds. They too were invested in the truth. They were too invested in the truth, I should say. As they knew, it would to be open to this truth would be also open to a greater life-changing, life-surrendering truth. That's why Jesus had no time for people like that. It was a waste of his energy. Well, actually, that's not completely true. That's, that's a little bit unfair because Jesus does give them the sign of Jonah. He gives them a sign that would have an impact on their hearts after his resurrection, when maybe they would be a little bit more open. So it wasn't just that Jesus had written them off. Jesus doesn't write anyone off, ever. But he also knows the state of our hearts. And if we're really open to believe, or if we're stubbornly stuck in unbelief. So Jesus gives these Pharisees a nugget that may bear fruit after his resurrection. And it does, actually, because many of these religious leaders become followers of Christ. 
Thomas wanted the resurrection to be true. He wanted to believe. He wanted to understand that Christ truly is both Lord and Christ. Thomas needed to be convinced, but Thomas also wanted to be convinced. Biblical faith is like that. Biblical faith is never blind faith. Thomas was not a blind believer. He was open to being convinced of the truth. And when he saw the compelling evidence of the truth, of, as Jesus himself stood before him, Thomas saw and he believed. You know, some people think that faith is based on ignorance, but it's not. At least not real faith. Ignorance is refusing to look honestly at the facts. Has nothing to do with intelligence. Has nothing to do with knowledge. It has to do with our focus. Ignorance is refusing to honestly look at the facts. Faith is being open to the truth, even if the truth is uncommon and unusual and completely beyond what would normally we would normally accept. Like the truth of the resurrection. You know, facts are facts, and truth is truth, and testimony is testimony. And the testimony of Thomas and the other disciples is that they went from doubt to belief. They went from cowering in a locked room to sacrificing their lives for the cause of sharing the good news of a risen Lord. What is it that you need to see? What wound do you need to touch? What is it that's holding you back? Be honest. Do you really want to believe or would you rather be unchanged and cynical? Let me be clear. I'm talking about everyone here, including myself. You see, even people of faith can be unbelieving and cynical about aspects of their lives and their faith and their experience. You know, maybe life has been too disappointing to hope that anything can really change, for example. Or maybe you believe in Jesus' resurrection, but you doubt in the resurrection power that Paul promises dwells within us through the Holy Spirit. Maybe your doubt isn't cynical, Maybe you want to believe. You you want the victory that Christ promises, but you're just confused and hurt. So you need to see Jesus. Maybe life right now is so confusing and terrifying and isolating that you just need to know and see a little more. Just, just, Just a little bit more. How can we speak to that need? What do you do with doubt in all this uncertainty? Well, Jesus gave Thomas what he needed. What do you need in order to believe? What do you need in order to take your faith from something others have fed you into something that you have confidence in through your own encounter with Christ? What will it take to bring you to your knees and boldly declare, my Lord and my God? The ironic thing may very well be that it's our present circumstances that are the very thing that you need. They may be the key. Now, it's time to seek people. It's time to reevaluate. 
It's time to be open to more. As we come to our time of communion, go ahead and ask. Lay it out. But lay it out with a heart that wants to see Jesus and believe. Ask with a heart that that wants to know the truth so that you can now live out that truth in a way that depends upon and honors Christ. Most of all, come to the Lord's table knowing that it's only after the dark. It's only after the uncertainty. It's only after the disappointment. It's only after the brokenness that happened on Good Friday and on Saturday. It's only after all these things, all of these questions, all of this confusion that they actually see Jesus clearly when he comes to them. In these days, I believe we can see Jesus more clearly than we ever have before. Just ask Just seek, just cry out, and surrender to the truth of the suffering king who became the resurrected Lord.